Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. There is no one kind of writer, but a super majority of writers with whom we work want to publish some form of a book. It might be a memoir or a nonfiction book or even fiction. Others want to write a legacy book for their family to make sure the stories of previous generations live on in the next. Often, the first question we are asked after a writer shares her book idea is, is this idea any good or is this good enough for a book? That question is followed up by, I'm afraid the topic has already been covered before. Is it a waste of my time? Dave and I have multiple thoughts on what makes an idea book worthy, even or especially if the topic has been covered before. We want to put to rest those elemental nagging questions by asking you to honestly ask yourself and then answer the following seven questions. But before we get started with question one, Dave, I want to ask you why you think so many people are haunted by this question. Is my idea bookworthy? The moment that we're saying that we're, we're, we're releasing this fear or saying this fear out into the world, which I think is a good thing. And we begin then with the assumption that this idea that that I've come up with probably sucks, right? <laughs> so I, I think it's part of the human condition. It's certainly part of the creative mindset. And, and so we start with fear. And I think it's a companion. And those of us who have continued to write, we, we always live with that companion. I think one reason why Ernest Hemingway was so neurotic was that he lived with that fear all the way till the time he took his own life, right? At the, you know, when he was what, early 60s? Here's someone who won the Pulitzer Prize. And, but I think we all start that way. So I think in part, we may all have a touch of the imposter syndrome. And I think, again, that's part of being human. So in fact, I would argue that if you don't have any thoughts that your ideas may not be that great, that might signal that you're a psycho, right? Maybe you're diagnosable. <laughs> so I think the fact that we worry about this, we think about this, we, I don't know, fantasize, not a word, but we obsess about it. I think that's a, that's a good signal. And it's a great place to start, actually. But it can be an excuse not to write. So I just think as we work through these seven questions today, trust yourself that, that it's okay to have this fear and that we all have it. It's universal. and that. It's a good place to start to begin working through your idea for your book. I was thinking about that question. And one reason I think people ask it is because once they have the answer that, yes, this idea is bookworthy, then suddenly they're faced with the scary proposition of actually having to put in the hard work to write it. So for some, it might be, if it's not bookworthy, then I can keep on thinking about the idea and I don't have to actually start writing. And I think for some people, the actual writing of the book or a long form piece of writing is really, really scary. So I think 
maybe it's a way of getting out of the actual writing of the book. It puts you on the hook, doesn't it? If you say, okay, I'm going to make progress. I might feel this way that my book isn't worthy, but I'm going to then take the step to make it worthy. Hopefully these seven questions today can really help you winnow your idea and really make progress. So I will start out with the first question. And the first question may be a little bit surprising to some of you, but we want authors to ask, has at least one book been written on my idea before? And this feels counterintuitive because we all think that we have to have an idea that's never been written on before, that to truly be successful, it has to be a one-of-a-kind idea. But this is a fallacy. Why is it a fallacy, Dave? It's a fallacy because if it hasn't been written on before, there might be a reason why, right? Because the idea isn't book-worthy. That, that's not always true. I think of the book, The Black Swan. And that was a book that came out right after the 2008 recession. So it was maybe four or five years after that. But it talked about these black swan events that happened. And the, the book had been, that kind of topic had been talked about before. But the way he framed it as the black swan was fresh. But the topic wasn't fresh. It wasn't new. It was this idea of these occasionally down through history, there's these black swan events and the Great Recession and the, you know, the plunging of the stock market was one of those. And you can't plan for those, by the way. I mean, you can, but you can't. But anyway, it's a good example of a book that really appeared to be fresh, but it was about an old topic. I think we all want to be the first one to write on a topic and be known for that one thing. And we like to say, though, that there really is nothing new under the sun. It's probably a true cliche. It's probably a cliche because it's true, right? Your idea is likely not the first in its category, like this black swan, right? There have been these moments in history before people have written on these moments of history, but it's how you frame it that can be unique to you. So let's help our audience understand some ways that they begin can begin to frame their idea in a collection of work that's already been done on a certain topic. So what, what is one thing that they can do to begin to frame their idea in a fresh way? I just want to reinforce though something you said before I, I go yeah. into that. And that is that you do need to embrace the idea that your book probably has, or your book idea probably has an extensive publishing history. So just embrace that. So that's a mindset shift. So moving from I need to write a book that has never been written on before to, okay, my idea has been written on before. And so now I just need to do some research. And so our first step would be make a list of the 10 best books in your category. And so that might be a fun afternoon at Barnes and Noble, or if there's any independent bookstores left. So spend, spend an afternoon or two, or obviously you can go jump online and do it as well, jump on Amazon, but really identify the 10 best books in your category. That's a great place to start. And we also say that when you do this, go ahead and scan the preface and maybe the first chapter, because you can usually capture what the thesis is of the book or what we call the big idea, the thesis. And, and that's important because you're going to be developing your thesis, right? Your thesis will be unique to you. So it's really helpful to scan these 10 books and see, and see if you can write down the thesis or big idea of each of these books. 
You know, Dave, I've been starting to do that because I really want to write a book on collecting, especially like vintage items. That's for my niches. I'm fairly passionate about it. I encourage people (laughs) in their own collecting. So I, I have a perspective on this and I've started to collect books on collecting because I'm realizing this topic has been done before and there are beautiful books on the topic. So what am I going to bring unique to this conversation? So I'm exactly where you're at, where you're encouraging authors to be in their struggling with this idea phase is trying to figure out where my idea fits in this kind of genre that is pretty rich and, and wonderful. And what I like about that is, is this final point on this first question we want to make is that the good news is that no, how many, no matter how many books, and in your case on collections, similar to the one you want to write, they're not going to be your book. And so you are unique. So your perspective on that topic will be fresh. So this first question that we talk about, has at least one book been written on my idea before? The answer should be absolutely. All right, Dave, let's move to question number two. And that is, is my idea strong enough or big enough for an entire book? And this really gets at the essence of long form writing. We all write short form, which is technically about 100 to 750 words, but long form writing is 1,500, 3,000, anything over 1,500, but you're looking at 3,000, 5,000 words for, for a chapter in a book, right? And that is a big amount of writing. That's, that, it, that takes a special craft to sustain an idea for that long. And often we don't have an idea developed enough to sustain that kind of an argument. I wrote a a blog post several years ago called What Jimmy Page and Robert Plant Taught Me About Life Choices. So Jimmy Page, of course, is the lead guitarist for Led Zeppelin, and Robert Plant is the lead singer. So I wrote this little piece with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant taught me about life choices. What I was talking about is kind of the second half of life, let's say after you hit your mid-30s or 40s, And Jimmy Page became a curator of the Led Zeppelin archive. So he has not been known for creating anything new. Robert Plant basically created, has had like four or five new bands since then, has won a bunch of Grammys. So he has explored all these different genres outside of hard rock and roll, right? And so it was a good model for me that I wanted to be like Robert Plant in the final third of my life and not like Jimmy Page. Well, that idea, sorry for all that run up on that idea, but that idea really isn't a full book, right? That's not a long form idea. It might be a section of a book about the second half of life, right? And and what to accomplish and how to think about it. But it's not really the idea itself, what Jimmy Page and Robert Plant taught me about life choices is just too narrow for an entire book. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think about going back to my book idea to turn it back to me. I have a lot of short form writing that I've done on Instagram and there are lots of ideas in there, but one idea in and of itself is not enough to create an entire book, right? So I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying and jiving with what you're saying. Like they could be pieces of a chapter of a book, but I still have to grapple with where would these fit into a book, into the narrative structure? What movement would they, would they fall into? And what is the big idea that it's all coming around to support? So 
Right. You have to really, you may have a great blog post. And I think lots of bloggers think that they can just turn their blog posts into a book. And that's a pretty dangerous, I think, thing to do because usually for one, they're disjointed. And for two, they're that you can't extend them into a full book. So that's one caveat that I would mention here at this point in this podcast. I even did that. Remember that one book, Native Tongue, I took a bunch of a, a blog posts and stitched them together and created a small little book. The challenge with that is they all tend to be standalone chapters that don't have a larger idea that governs them. So you can do it, but then they become kind of a series of disconnected essays. So I think as we, this, this question that we're talking about right now, we're talking about these seven questions. Is my idea strong enough or big enough for an entire book is something you need to really wrestle with it. I remember we listened to, uh, I heard the other day, Seth Godin, you know, the guru on marketing who writes a blog post and sends it out every day and has done so for gosh, what, 17, 18, almost 20 years. And he's never missed by the way. But he said that with the advent of the podcast, he's realized that he could do a, a series of podcasts and sate his need for writing another book. And so that was so interesting to me that, that he needs to write fewer books because he figured out, oh, some ideas I can actually execute within the, the constraints of a podcast, and they're better as a podcast than they would be as a book. So the point simply here in this whole conversation under this category, under this question, excuse me, is sometimes your idea isn't big enough for an entire book. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it. It might be that you have to go larger with the idea. Right. And actually start doing some long form writing with the idea. You won't know if you can sustain an argument for an entire book until you write one chapter, let's say 3,000 to 5,000 words and realize. I only hit one part of my big idea, and now I have more that I need to write. So part of it is just seeing, can you write a long-form piece on this idea, on one part of the idea? I do think you can take a short-form piece. There are some short-form pieces that can be, in a sense, in a sense exploded into a larger idea. But it, it's, it, I do think when you're looking at your idea itself, is this big enough for a for an entire book? It's an important question to ask. And just to add to that, as soon as you start actually writing a longer form piece, you begin to develop your idea in a more nuanced way. I know somebody in our road trippers wanted to write about some life experiences growing up and some of the complexities of being in a boarding school. And he started with one piece. And as he wrote it, he started to see an idea shape that he could build other stories around for a memoir type book down the road. So it's one of those things where you write one piece and your idea starts to um, become more fine-tuned. So it's a really important thing to do. All right, Dave, let's look at question number three. Do I write regularly or at least semi-regularly? Why do we need to ask this question? Because if the answer is yes, then the idea that you have in your head might be bookworthy. And so that means that you already know what it takes to write, let's say, 1,500 words or 500 words. So you have a feel. If you've been writing and you have an idea for a book, you have a feel for what it takes to research a topic and, and write that, that first draft and then enter into a series of editing cycles to complete the project. So we like to say that if you have an idea for a book, but you're not writing, that's kind of hard, right? Because 
it, it would be hard for you to make that judgment whether the idea is is that good just simply because you're not writing regularly and so you don't have a feel for that first draft and and the feel for what it means to create an idea and to to expand an idea and to create a narrative arc you know starting- and to create a narrative arc that's right Experienced writers tend to have a better feel for the kind of idea that could be sustained for more than an article. So if you're not writing, our encouragement to you today is to start writing today and try to do more than short form writing because writing a book is long form writing. So you need to get comfortable with the discomfort of getting stuck, knowing when you need to do more research, when you need to do more reading, when you need to explain an idea more, maybe do some more interviews. It, it just, it's a whole different ball game that you just need to get uncomfortable with, get comfortable being uncomfortable with. Let's say you've been blogging and you would like to take a blog, let's say that's 700 words, and you'd like, you think that this actually has legs or what's the word? It has, it has, it ha- it could be a much part of something much bigger. Why don't you think of, of it in terms of an article? Let's say that you're going to submit that to a magazine that wanted a 5,000-word piece. How would you structure it? What would you write in those 5,000 words? I would take this next half step, which is write a long-form piece, which is what you're saying. And I think that will really help you sharpen your idea. Right, because the problem with blogs is you don't necessarily have move, movements. You get in, you make a point, you illustrate it, and you get out, right? And long-form writing, you typically, just visually, you look at it, there are subheads, right? And so that indicates to you that there are movements within it. And so begin to think about how you could build out this basic idea, maybe that you've already explored in an article, like you're saying, and maybe create different movements. And, and then ask yourself, what do I need to just support this idea more? Because I don't have all the material I need, right? Yeah. Now. All right. The fourth question that we want you to ask yourself when considering whether or not your idea is bookworthy is, is my idea based on a deep expertise? So if you have a deep expertise from years of experience in a field, whether it's leadership, maybe it's in canning, (laughs) personal (laughs) finance, whatever it is, then you've likely been sharpening your ideas for years. It's kind of like with me in vintage and collecting. I mean, I've been a collector for as long as I can remember. And I've been thinking about the topic of collecting now seriously for the past seven to eight years and short form writing. So I do have an expertise in it. I mean, I do a lot of shopping for my business. And so I think people, when they look at me, they think, oh, Melissa, she's an expert in vintage collecting. So if you're an expert in it, it likely means that you have lots of stories to draw from because you're living it, right? You're having conversations with people who are passionate about the same thing you've slipped up, you've had moments where things haven't gone right. And so you know what to look out for, right? There are just some wonderful things that happen. And you have connections with people who are experts in the field as well. So you can get their input on things. So it's a real gift if you're an expert in something because you have life experiences, you have stories, and you also have other experts with whom you can connect. Can you think of anything else on this topic, Dave? Expertise can be everything on, there are people that I know that are homeschoolers, right? And so there's, that's a topic. I have a sister-in-law who's a homeschooler. I'm a fly fisher. So I did a book called The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists. Life is short, catch Catch more fish. fish. There you go. Catch more fish. So, so it was based on my expertise in fly fishing. And so it, you know, after 
numerous years in the sport, it, it became an idea that I had for a book. Well, it was a friend and I had the idea for a book. It was a co-authored book. The point, so I just think this is a great point. And a lot of people that are in, let's say, corporate have an expertise. Have a, we know that somebody in our road trippers, she was in corporate, but now she has her own coaching business and she coaches in the family business space. And so she's working on a book to help solve some of the issues that she's seen as a coach in a multi-generational family business. So it's going to be a great asset to her business, but also to the community at large, because the issues that she's grappling with are very, very significant. So we also like to say that you've, if you're an expert, you've likely written on the topic, or you probably also have spoken on the topic before. And when you do that, then you get questions from other people, or you start to think about how your ideas play out in the real world. And then suddenly you're up at night thinking about, oh, have I considered this for this idea, right? It's like the more you, you share your idea, the more ideas you get for <laughs> your book idea, right? And so we like to say that lots of authors have a good book idea, but keeps them up at night. There's a lot of expertise that people have. And if you're searching for a good idea and you're wrestling with this idea, if it's, if it's tied to some deep ex expertise that you have, you have a great future. And I think you need to continue to pursue the idea. One caveat is that experts want to dump all of their expertise, everything that they've written, everything that they've ever thought on a topic into a book. And that's not a good book. You really have to use your thesis as a filter for determining what you take from those speaking engagements, what you take from your previous writing, and even what you focus on. Because lots of times, as an expert, you have different topics that you like to focus on. And really, a good idea is really narrow. So just one caveat, you can't just take all your PowerPoint pre presentations and dump them into a book. That would be a very uninteresting book. That's the, that's the role of a book thesis, right? It gives you specific focus for the book. The more general, the more difficult it is to write something that is fresh. All right. The fifth question, do I have an online following that reads my writing already? So Dave, let's talk about this. If you're a blogger, then you most likely have a few folks who read your blog when you release it each week or month. We send out a tipster every week and we have people that open that up, right? And if you're an executive yeah. director, like my sister is, she often writes a piece for the newsletter that goes out to her, her to the donors and stakeholders. I have an Instagram following. And so I have people who read what I write on Instagram. You may have another social media platform, which you publish on. So the point of this is there are people who are reading your blog or reading your newsletter column or reading your Instagram posts. And these are a great resource to tap into because they are giving you real-time feedback on your idea. We just interviewed Natalie of Home Echo Op a couple weeks ago, and she is, I would call her an influencer on Instagram in the design space. And she's often floating ideas in her account, writing about how to use art in your home and how to be bold in your design. So she's, she's writing on these topics and she gets tons of feedback from her readers. And it, I can see how it's shaping her idea to move forward with this book project that she's working on. So the big idea here is, do you have an online following that reads your writing? Because they're a great resource to help you develop that idea. 
And so I think encouraging comments is really important. And you do that really well with McGillicuddy, which is your Instagram brand. And you get so many comments to your posts and those can really lead you to some great ideas, deepening your ideas, sharpening your ideas, new ideas for stories. So this question is, do you, do I have an online following? That's an important piece because if you do want to publish and we say, what's our definition of publishing again? It's just your words public (laughs) to make your words public. So in that definition, if you do have an online following of some sort, even if it's only five people, that is a great place for, because when you do produce that book, you have someone to sell that book to, or to promote that book to. And it's also a really great indicator when you start to share that what you're actually writing for a book, if you get a book deal, or if you're going to be self-publishing, you're actually writing a book and you it's normal to share some ideas that you're thinking about. And when people give you that feedback of, of man, I, I want you to write more on this topic, it can be really encouraging for you to persevere in the book writing process. All right, Dave, question number six, we're getting to the end is, have I run the idea past an ideal reader? Who is not our ideal reader, Dave? <laughs> your mom is not an ideal reader. Neither is your boss, most likely, or a coworker who probably is too competitive with you and would never like anything that you wrote because it would make him or her feel insecure, right? So you definitely want some unvarnished feedback on your idea sooner rather than later. And usually it's less about just saying this idea, but having something written about that idea. But, 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 but it really needs to be someone who fits the profile of your ideal potential reader. So we have a weekly road trippers that we talk about and we have people that will discuss their writing in this group it's it's a cohort coaching group and and people are very vulnerable there and sometimes when i listen to the feedback by others in the group i often realize you know that person isn't an ideal reader so someone who isn't an ideal reader will probably focus on the nits right they'll focus on oh the grammar and this and that and or they might focus on some things that are helpful, but they may not connect with the emotion of the piece. So you want someone where their eyebrows raise when they discuss with you what they liked about your piece, because that's that connection. So you do need ideal readers. And when I wrote Death by Suburb, I identified one person who was my core idea reader, and I had her read every chapter. And her feedback was really valuable. And it wasn't on grammar, right? That all gets fixed somewhere along the line. Her feedback was so valuable because I realized I'd say things that didn't connect with her or, or she would all of a sudden go off on something. And sometimes I think I even use some of her stories because you could see that the content that I wrote was connecting with her. That's so important to know. So As you think about this idea that you're writing or want to write about, maybe write a few paragraphs or write a, you know, write it a thousand words or write 1500 words and run it by someone you think is your ideal reader. And before you run it by that person, you may actually do a quick little exercise that we encourage our writers to do and come up with a list of short descriptions of the worldview of your ideal reader. And Dave, like you did, think of a real human being and 
what does this person wake up in the middle of the night worrying about? What does he or she dream about? What makes him or her happy? What does she believe about the world? And then once you have that list, maybe then you can identify who that actual ideal reader is that you invite out to coffee and hand your manuscript over to. Often, as you think about, <laughs> you, can, you can judge an ideal reader by thinking about all the hot buttons today that are out there in terms of the world, everything from politics to whatever it is. And one question is, what is this person's hot buttons? What makes them mad, right? Or what gets them really amped up? That's really helpful in identifying who your ideal reader is. I also want to just encourage people to sit through the discomfort of having somebody provide you feedback because it might not always be positive. People might respond like, I really love where you're going here with this, but I don't understand quite what you're doing right here. And not everything is going to resonate. And that is the gift of an ideal reader is they're going to point out your blind spots. They're going to point out those areas where you're not absolutely clear or where it is disconnecting. And it's a, it's a wonderful moment when they actually are really honest with you and you need to be ready to ask that follow-up question as what doesn't work with you or why doesn't that work for you? This is a huge gift if they can actually answer that for you because it will shape then how you rewrite the chapter that you're working on or write future chapters. It's, it's just a gift. So when you don't get the feedback that you're hoping for or if it's not all sunshine, embrace, embrace the darker stuff too, because it's going to make it better in the long run. Now I'll just pump a little sunshine. It it might surprise you, right? I mean, what if what you wrote deeply moves someone, right? What if it changes their thinking? And so you might also get some really positive feedback. And I think the only valuable feedback that's positive must come from an ideal reader. It cannot come from your spouse or your mom, or your sister who really believes in you and feels bad for you, right? And wants you to succeed in something. It actually has to be substantively good. And only an ideal reader can give you that kind of truth. So I would imagine there are some people listening to this podcast today who have shared their book idea with friends and families and family members, and those people are not their ideal readers. So if friends and family members are saying, that's a great idea, but they're not your ideal reader, This is where you go and find that ideal reader and get some real feedback because they may not be providing you what you really need to hear to help understand, is this idea viable or not? I would just add too, that if you've received a bunch of negative feedback from your mom or your sister or someone like that to to press forward, right? And, And it's okay to say, you know what? That person's not my ideal reader. I should discard most of that. And the other thing you should always discard is all the nits, like just uh, like, cause they try to make you feel bad. Oh, this verb doesn't work or this, that you don't need a comma here. Oh my, and just ignore all that. That's just white noise. That all gets cleaned up somewhere down the road. What your work worry really thinking about with this ideal readers, you want connection, right? You want emotional connection and resonance with the ideas that you're writing. All right. Question number seven. Am I so passionate about this idea that I can't stop thinking about it? This is a really important question to end with, I think, because passion is what's going to drive you through those dark nights when you feel like giving up, right, Dave? 
it's, it's maybe the most important question of all. Am I passionate enough to keep on writing this? Can I not stop writing about it? What would it be like if I decided not to write it? Would I be able to live with myself? And there are those, some of you are so bright and you do have 20 ideas and, and you'd say, well, I, I need to write on something and you've got all these ideas. It just does, comes back to passion. What do you feel most passionate about of all those ideas? Or what's the one that's just, it stays stuck with you somehow. And for me, when I moved from, I actually moved from Colorado to Chicago in the early 90s. And I, it was the, really the first time that I experienced as a professional, the suburbs, because I grew up in rural North Dakota. And even though I grew up in, in the cities of North Dakota, still very rural, right? And so when I moved to the suburbs in my 20s and experienced like, why are all these women like these tiny size four women? Why are they driving these big SUVs? And there's no, there's no even snow on the ground. Why would they need a four-wheel drive? It was odd to me because I grew up in the rural community where, you know, you have a tractor and you might only have a two-wheeler and you might get a hundred inches of snow that year. But there, there, there was this kind of concern about security and about feeling safe. And so there was these things that, that were, that stuck with me and I couldn't shake it. And it just kept, I kept like writing notes and making observations. And so that's how an idea can stick with you over time. If you find that you have an idea that just keeps sticking with you, pay attention to that. And, and if you feel even a modicum of passion about it, that's, that's a good signal that you need to pursue this idea. Passion really does trump everything. And as I said earlier, you'll need it to sustain your writing, especially when you, your days get long. You have to stay up like you did, Dave, from until midnight after a long work day to complete your manuscript. Or maybe you get some negative feedback and you feel like giving it up. If you're passionate about it, that's really going to sustain you. If you can remember why you're writing this book, and that why is usually tied to something more missional. Yeah. And it has yeah. to do with why we write, which is to change the world with our words. I hope that you all ask some of these seven questions and let us know if they help you at all with focusing your idea or moving forward with writing that book of yours. We love to hear progress stories. All right, Dave, before we sign off, let's turn to our words of the episode. You go first. I went first last week, so you go first this week. <laughs> so mine's kind of a boring word. It's called, it's stolid, S-T-O-L-I-D, stolid. It's an adjective and it refers to a human being, someone who is calm, dependable, and shows little emotion or animation. So I was thinking about this in high school. All the high school girls wanted to date the dangerous guy, right? The wild guy. Now, that was my perspective. Now, that might not be true of all the high school girls, but it was my perspective that they wanted the wild and dangerous guys, the party guys. So nobody aspired to, to marry their stolid friends, right? The dependable, calm, the people that are going to go on to become accountants and, and, and just ordinary people that get up every day and do the job. So I thought it was a great word. It, it had a negative connotation to me, but it's not at all. I mean, you could put a picture of Jerry next to this definition. <laughs> 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 
called? Well, he's an engineer. He's a computer scientist. He's a genius. I don't know if he's a genius, but he's he is calm and he is dependable and he doesn't really animate very much. So yeah, I'm just going to call him Stolid Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is my husband, for those of you who don't know. So I, I love that word because it rhymes with solid and it gives kind of the same feeling as the word solid, but it has that T in it. So it's an easy one to remember. And it's a little bit different than obviously the word solid, but has a similar connotative value. Okay, so my word is hard to say, so I, I may have to say it a couple times. Bear with me here. It is funambulism, and you spell it F-U-N-A-M-B-U-L-I-S-M. And it's, it's a noun, and it has a very literal meaning, but as words tend to do, it has now taken on a more connotative meaning. And so Funambulism means tightrope walking, and it's that's, that sense has led to people applying the word for a show of mental agility. So the show features funambulism, which the audience oohs and ahs over. So that's the more literal sense. Back in ancient Rome, though, here's a little etymology. Tightrope walking was a popular spectacle at, at public gatherings, and so the Latin word for tightrope walkers funambulus from the Latin word funus, meaning rope, and ambular means obviously to walk. So over time, that's how this fancy word for an impressive act of physical skill and agility came to be and is now translates to mental skill or agility. So here is an example from a piece of writing, and it is, Jason Kenney is a deft exponent of funambulism, the fine art of political tightrope walking. I always love it when an author has to tell us what the word means because they know that the audience won't know what it means. <laughs> and here's what it means. The Alberta Premier's High Wire Act requires him to be suitably outraged at Ottawa's anti-energy policies, but not so aggrieved that he incites what he calls the fear and anger roiling the prairies. What a great paragraph that is, using a word that isn't used every day, but I think captures the essence of an idea really, really well. So funambulism, there we go. That's my word of the day. Well, I like this paragraph that you read because I think as a writer, and we had this conversation in our Road Trippers group, there was someone who mentioned that she was reading some piece of work and she had to look up words every other paragraph. Wasn't quite that much, of course, but, and she said, so is that a good thing to be throwing in a lot of words that, you know, that, that, that people might have to look up. And it ended, it was a really good conversation. But what I like about what he's done here is that he uses the word, but honors his readers by giving them insight into what the word means while yet not making it that obvious that they're stupid. It's just a great model for us. If we want to add in words that are fresh and maybe unique. It's a great little paragraph, isn't it? Even uses high wire act to extend that metaphor of funambulism. So it's really smart writing right there and a great for how to use a big word. (laughs) How to use a big word and 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 not write down to your audience, to your reader. All right, Dave. Well, I think this has been another great episode. I hope that people find some time this week to get out their tablets and their computers and some paper and write. So I am Melissa Parks. 
And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 